smashing. Give everyone the best possible start to the day. See special packs for details. Smashing. On this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about web performance. What does the performance landscape look like in 2021? We talked to expert Harry Roberts to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. Web Design Trends 2021, The Report, Susan Skacker looks at some of the predictions for web design trends in the coming year, as heralded in a report by Editor X. The interactive report goes through dozens of examples of sites that try to come up with original and unexpected solutions. It's not all about the examples, though. The showcase covers how designers lived through the repercussions of the past year and share their insights into the future of screen design. Fortune Iketchi guides us through using Gromit in React applications. Learn how we can use Gromit as a UI library for developing responsive, accessible, and mobile-first components for React applications. We take a closer look at its core concepts, some of its use cases, and build up a simple example to get you started. In How to Build a Node.js API for Ethereum Blockchain, John Akbanusi explains how you can build a Node.js API from scratch by building and deploying an Ethereum blockchain for decentralization. He also shows you a step-by-step process of integrating both the API and blockchain into a single API called a Decentralized Application API. Smashing Magazine founder Vitaly Friedman takes a look at how we improved Smashing Mag performance. Vitaly takes a close look at some of the changes made to the site, which runs Jamstack with React, to optimize web performance and improve the core web vitals metrics. Find out what worked and what failed, as well as some of the unexpected changes that help boost all the metrics across the board. And in When to Say No to Freelance Projects, Becca Kennedy reflects that for hungry freelancers, it can be hard to turn work away. But in the long run, saying no to a project that's a bad fit will make you a better freelancer. This article will help freelancers and consultants think critically about when to decline an opportunity or request and how to do so assertively, but kindly. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's an independent consultant web performance engineer from Leeds in the UK. In his role, he helps some of the world's largest and most respected organizations deliver faster and more reliable experiences to their customers. He's an invited Google developer expert, a Cloudinary media developer expert, an award-winning developer, and an international speaker. So we know he knows his stuff when it comes to web performance. But did you know he has 14 arms and seven legs? My smashing friends, please welcome Harry Roberts. Hi, Harry. How are you? Hey, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm smashing. Thank you very much. Um, obviously, the, the 14 arms, seven legs, uh, still posing its usual problems. Impossible to buy trousers. And, and bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I have, I have three and a half bicycles. 
So I wanted to talk to you today not about bicycles, unfortunately, although that would be fun in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about web performance. Um, it's a subject that I'm personally really passionate about, but it's one of those areas where I worry when I sort of take my eye off the ball and, and get involved in some sort of other work and then come back to doing a bit of performance work. I worried that the the sort of knowledge I'm working with goes out of date really quick. Um, is web performance as sort of fast moving these days as I perceive? This is, I'm not even just saying this to be naughty, that's such a good question because it kind of, I've been I've been thinking on this myself quite a bit lately, and I'd say there are two halves to it. One thing that I always try and tell clients is that actually it doesn't move that fast, predominantly because, and this is the soundbite I always I always use, is you can bet on the browser. Um, browsers aren't really allowed to change fundamentally how they work because, of course, there's two decades of legacy they have to uphold. So generally, if you if you bet on the browser and you know how those internals work, and, and TCP/IP that's never changing. So there's certain things that are just kind of fairly set in stone, which means that, um, you know, best practice will, by and large, always be best practice um, where, like I say, where the fundamentals are concerned. Where it does get more interesting is the thing I'm seeing more and more is that we're painting ourselves into corners when it comes to site speed issues. So we actually create a lot of problems for ourselves. So what that means, I think, realistically is performance it's the moving goalposts, I suppose. The more the landscape or the sort of topography of the web changes and the way it's built and the way we work, we pose ourselves new challenges. You know, so the advent of doing a lot more work on the client poses different performance issues that we'd be solving five years ago. But those performance issues still pertain to browser internals, which by and large haven't changed in in five years. So it, a lot of it depends. And yeah, I'd say this. this Definitely two clear sides to it. Um, as such, I encourage my clients, lean on the browser, lean on standards because they can't just be changed. You know, the goalposts don't really move. But of course, that needs to meld with with more modern and perhaps slightly more interesting development practices. So it's kind of, you can keep your, well, I could say a, a, a foot in both camps, but with my seven feet, um, <laughs> I have to four and three. <laughs> um I mean, you, you mentioned that the the fundamentals don't change and things like TCP IP don't change. One of the things that did change in, I mean, I say recent years, is actually probably going back a little bit now, but is is HTTP um, in that we we had this long-established protocol, HTTP, for, for communicating between um, clients and servers, and that changed, and we got H2. Um, which is then all binary and, and, and different. And that kind of changed a lot of the, it was for performance reasons, right? It was um, it was to take away some of the existing limitations, um, but that, that was kind of uh, a change and the way we had to optimize for that protocol changed. Is, I mean, the, the, is, is that now stable or is there, is it going to change again or? Um, so one thing that I uh, would like to be learning more about is that, is is that the, the latter half of your question? You're know, changing again. I need to be looking more into quick and H3, but it's a bit too far around the corner to be useful to my clients. So when it comes to H2, things have changed quite a lot, but I genuinely think H2 is a lot of false promise, and I do believe it has rushed over the line, which is remarkable considering H1 was launched 19, well, H1.1 was 1997. So we had a lot of time to work on H2. Um, I guess the primary benefit as as web developers will understand it or perceive it is 
unlimited in-flight requests now. So rather than six dispatched and or six in-flight requests at a time, it's potentially unlimited, infinite. Brings really interesting problems though, because um, I'm trying to, it's quite hard to describe without like visual aids, but um, you've still got the same amount of bandwidth available, whether you're running H1 or H2, right? The, the protocol doesn't make your connection any faster. So it's quite possible that you could flood the network by requesting 24 files at once. You don't have enough bandwidth for that. So you don't actually get any faster because you can only manage perhaps a fraction of that at a time. And also what you have to think about is how the files respond. And this is another a little pro tip I go through on client workshops, etc. People will look at an H2 waterfall and they will see that instead of the traditional six dispatch requests, they might see, you know, say 24. Dispatching 24 requests isn't actually that useful. What is useful is when those responses are returned. And what you'll notice is that you might dispatch 24 requests, so your left-hand side of your waterfall looks really nice and steep, but they will return in a fairly staggered sequential manner because, you know, you need to limited amount of bandwidth so you can't fulfill all responses at the same time. Also, the other thing is if you were to fulfill all responses at the same time, you'd be interleaving responses. So you might get first 10% of each file and the next 20 to 20% of a JavaScript file is useless, right? <laughs> JavaScript isn't usable until 100% of it's arrived. So what you'll see is in, in actual fact, the way an H2 waterfall manifests itself when you look at the responses, uh, it looks a lot more like H1 anyway. It's a lot more staggered. So H2 is kind of, I think it was maybe oversold or, or perhaps engineers weren't led to believe that, you know, there are, there are caps on how effective it could be. Um, because yeah, you'll see people then overly sharding their assets and they, you know, they might have 20, like, let's keep the number 24. Instead of having two big JS files, you might have 24 little bundles. They'll still return fairly sequentially. They won't all arrive at the same time because you've not magic to yourself more bandwidth. And the other problem is each request still has a constant amount of latency. So let's say you are requesting two big files and it's a hundred millisecond round trip and 250 milliseconds downloading, that's two times 350 milliseconds. If you multiply that to 24 requests, you've still got that constant latency, which we've decided is 100 milliseconds. So now you've got 2,400 milliseconds of latency and 24 times, instead of 250 milliseconds download, let's say it's 25 milliseconds of download. It's actually taken longer because the latency stays constant. Uh, and you just multiply that latency over more requests. So I'll see clients who will have read that H2 is this sort of magic bullet. They'll shard, or they can simplify the development process. We don't need to do bundling or concatenation, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, it'll end up slower because you've reduced, or sorry, you've, you've managed to like spread your requests out, which was you know the, the promise, but your latency stays constant. So you've actually just got N times more latency in the browser. Like, like I said, really hard and probably pointless trying to explain that without visuals. But it's, it's remarkable just how HD manifests itself compared to kind of what people are hoping it might do. Is there still benefit in in that sort of sharding process in that, okay, it, to get the whole lot still takes the same amount of time, but by the time you get 100% of the first 124th uh, back, you can start working on it uh, and you can start executing it before the, the 24th, 24th is through. Oh man, another great question. So absolutely, if, if things go correctly and it does manifest itself in a more H1 looking response, mm -hmm. the idea the idea would be file one returns first, two, three, four, and then they can execute in the order they arrive. So you can actually 
basically shorten the aggregate time by ensuring that things arrive at the same time. If you have if you ever look at a um, a web page that's waterfall and you notice that requests are interleaved, that's bad news because, like I say, ten percent of a JavaScript file is useless. If a server does its job properly and it's send 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 send, mm-hmm. uh, then it will it will get faster. And then you've got knock on benefits of your caching strategy can be a little more granular. So really annoying would be you update the font size on your date picker widget. In H1 world, you've got a cache bust, perhaps 200 kilobytes worth of your site-wide CSS. Whereas now you just cache bust date picker.css. So we've got like, offshoot benefits like that, which are, which are definitely, definitely very valuable. I guess if in the scenario where you magically did get all your requests back at once, that would also bog down the client potentially, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, potentially. Um, and then what would actually happen is um, the client would have to then do a load of resource scheduling. So what you'd end up with is a waterfall where all your responses return at the same time. Then you'd have like a fairly large gap between the last response arriving and its ability to execute. So ideally, when we're talking about JavaScript, you'd want the browser to request them all in the correct order, basically the order you defined them in, the server to return them all in the correct order so then the browser can execute them in the correct order. Because uh, obviously, yeah, as you say, if they all returned at the same time, you've just got a massive JavaScript to run at once, but it still needs to be scheduled. So it could have, you could have a delta of like, you know, up to a second between a file arriving and it becoming useful. So actually H1, I guess ideally what you're after is H2 style request scheduling, H1 style responses, so that then things can be put into or made useful as they arrive, I guess. So you're basically looking for a, a response waterfall that looks like you could ski down it. But, yeah, exactly. But you wouldn't, right. you wouldn't need a parachute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a really difficult one to figure I mean, I think to just say it out loud, it sounds really trivial. But given the way H2 was sold, it's quite, I find it quite, not challenging because that makes my clients sound like, you know, dumb. But it's quite a thing to sort of explain to them, no, no, if you think about how H1 works, it wasn't that bad. Um, you know, and if we get responses that look like that and, you know, it's, oh yeah, I can see it now. So um, I've had to teach performance engineers this before, people who do what I do. I've had to teach performance engineers that we don't mind too much when requests were made. We really care about when responses become useful. I mean, uh, one of the the reasons things seem to to sort of move on quite quite quickly, especially over the last five years, is that performance is like a big topic for Google. And when Google puts weight behind something like this, then it you know it gains traction. Essentially, though, performance is a an aspect of user experience, isn't it? Oh, I mean, I, I, this this is a this is a really good podcast. I was thinking about this. <laughs> I was thinking about this half an hour ago. I promise you, I was thinking about this half an hour ago. Performance is applied accessibility. You're guaranteeing or, or increasing the chances that someone can access your content, and I think accessibility is often just oh, it's 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 screen readers, right? It's 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 people without sight. You know, the decision to build a website rather than an app is the decision to access, you know access more of an audience. So yeah, performance is applied accessibility, which is therefore the user experience, and that user experience could come down to could somebody even experience your site full stop. Uh, or it could be, was that experience delightful, right? You know, when I clicked a button, did it respond in a timely manner? So, uh, yeah, 100% agree. Um, and I think that's a lot of the reason why it's uh, Google are putting weight on it is because 
it, it affects the user experience. And if someone's going to be trusting search results, we want to try and give that person a site they're not going to you know, hate. And it's um, it, it, uh, everything that you think about, all the benefits you think about user experience, things like increased engagement is definitely true, isn't it? If um, there's nothing that, uh, that sends a user away from a site uh, more quickly than just a sluggish experience. It's, I mean, it's so frustrating, isn't it, using a site where you know that uh, maybe the navigation isn't that clear, and if you if you click through to a link and you think, oh, you know, is this what I want? Is it not? And just the cost of making that click, just waiting, and then you've got to click the back button, and then that yeah. waiting, and it's just, you give up. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. Like if you were to nip to the supermarket and you see that it's absolutely just rammed with people, you'll do the bare minimum. You're not going to spend a lot of money there. It's like, oh, I just need milk in and out. Whereas if, you know, it's a nice experience, like, oh, well, while I'm here, I'll see if, oh, yeah, they've got this, and oh, we'll do, oh, and I'll cook this tomorrow night, or whatever, and there's no reason. I mean, I think it's, I think, still, you know, three decades into the web, even people who build for the web struggle, because it's intangible, they struggle to really think that, you know, what would annoy you in a real store would annoy you online, and it does, and the stats show that it has. I think, um, like, in the, in the very early days, I'm thinking, like, late 90s, um, I'm showing my age here. When we were building websites, we very, very much thought about performance, but we thought about performance from a point of view that the connections that people were using were so slow. We're talking about like dial-up modems over phone lines, you know, 28K, yeah, yeah. 56K modems. And um, there was there was a trend at, at one point with, um, with styling images that uh, every other line of the image, you'd blank out with a solid color to give this sort of, you know, if you can imagine it, like looking through a Venetian blind at the image. Yeah. Um, and we did that because it, it helped with the compression because each, you know, every other line, the compression algorithm could... Collapse into one sort of pointer. Yeah. And so you re- significantly reduced your image size while still being able to get an impression. And it became a, a design element. Everybody was doing it. I think maybe Jeffrey Zeldman was one of the, the first who sort of pioneered uh, that approach. But what we were thinking about there was primarily you know how quickly could we could we get things down the wire um not for user experience because we weren't thinking about you i mean i guess it was user experience because we didn't want people to to leave our sites essentially um but the we were thinking about not optimizing things to be really fast but trying to avoid them being really slow uh if that makes sense yeah yeah um and then i think as 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 speeds um like uh adsl lines uh, um you know became more prevalent that we stopped thinking in those terms and started thinking you know whilst just not thinking about it at all and now we're at a situation where we're back to we're using mobile devices and they've got constrained connections and and, and perhaps slower cpus um and we're, we're having to think about it again but this this time in terms of getting an advantage i mean it can as well as the the sort of uh, user experience side of things, it can have real business benefits in terms of sort of costs and, and ability to make profit, hasn't it? Yeah, tremendously, yeah. I mean, um, I'm not sure how to word it. Not kind of shooting myself in the foot here, but one thing I do try and stress to clients is that site speed is going to give you a competitive advantage, but it's only one thing that could give you some competitive advantage. If you've got a product no one wants to buy, that doesn't matter how fast your site is. Um, and equally, you know, if, if someone genuinely wants the world's fastest website, um, yeah, delete your images, delete your CSS, delete your JavaScript, and then see how many products you sell. Because I can guarantee site speed wasn't a factor. <laughs> um, but yeah, studies have shown that 
there's huge benefits of being fast uh, to the order of you know, millions. I've, I'm working with a client sort of as we speak. Uh, we worked out for them that if they could just save, if they could render their, uh, a given page one second faster, or rather their largest contentful paint was one second faster, it's worth 1.8 mil a year, which is, it's, that's, a, that's a big number. Um, that, that would almost pay your fee. Hey, yeah, almost. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did say to them, look, after two years, this will be all paid off. Um, you'll be breaking even. <laughs> uh, I wish. Um, but yeah, uh, there's, there's, there's the... There's the client-facing aspect, or the, sorry, the customer-facing aspect of if you've got an e-com site, they're going to spend more money. Um, if you're a publisher, they're going to read more of an article, right? Um, or they will view more minutes of content or whatever it is you do that is your KPI that you measure. You know, it could be on the smashing site. It could be they didn't bounce. They actually clicked through a few more articles because we made it really easy and fast. Then faster sites are cheaper to run. You know, if you've got your caching strategy sorted, you're going to keep people away from your servers. If you've optimized your assets, anything that does have to come from your server is going to weigh a lot less. Um, so they're much cheaper to run. Um, I mean, the, the thing is, it's, there's a cost in getting there. So I think Scott Gell probably said one of the most, and I hope I, I hope I'm I, mean, I heard it from him first, so I'm going to see if he came up with it. But the saying is. Um, it's easy to make a fast website, but it's difficult to make a website fast. And that is just so succinct. Um, because, you know, the reason sort of WebPerf might get pushed down the list of things to do is because, um, yeah, you might be able to say to a client, if I make your site a second faster, you'll make an extra 1.8 mil a year. Or it could be, well, if you just added Apple Pay to your checkout, you're going to make an extra 5 mil, right? So it's not all about WebPerf and it isn't the deciding factor. It is one part of a much bigger strategy for, especially for e-com online. But the evidence is there. I've measured it firsthand with my retail clients, my e-com clients. The case studies are out there. You're absolutely right. It's, it's a competitive advantage. It will make you more money. Back in back in the day, again, I'm uh, uh, again harking back to a, a time past. Um, but people like uh, Steve Souders were, were first sort of, the, some of the first people to really start writing and speaking about web performance and people like steve were basically saying that you know forget the back-end infrastructure um where all the gains to be had are, are in the browser in the front end that's you know that's where everything slow happens is that still the case 15 years on um yeah yeah i mean he re-ran the test sort of in between way back then and, and now and the gap had actually widened, so it's actually even more costly um, over the wire. But there is a counter to that, which is if you've got really bad back-end performance, it basically, if you if you set out of the gate slowly, there's only so much you can claw back on the front end. I've got a client at the moment, their time to first byte is 1.5 seconds. We can never render faster than 1.5 seconds, therefore. You know, so that's kind of going to be a cap. We can still claw time back on the front end, but... If you've got a really, really bad time to first bite, you have got back-end sort of slowdowns. There's a limit on how much faster your front-end performance efforts could get you. But absolutely. Um, that is, however, changing because... Um, oh, no, it's not changing. I guess it's getting worse. Uh, we're pushing more onto the client. So it used to be a case of, right, your, your server is as fast as it is, but then after that, we've got a bunch of question marks. Is your... You know, because I hear this all the time. Oh, yeah, all our users are on, on Wi-Fi. They've all got desktop machines because they all work from an office. Well, no, now they're all working from home. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you don't get to choose. 
So that's where the question marks come in, which is where a lot of the slowdowns happen, where you can't really control it. Add to that the fact that now we are tending to put more on the client. <laughs> By that, I mean entire runtimes on the client. Um, you've moved all your application logic off of a server anyway, so your time to first byte should be very, very minimal. It should be a case of sending some bundles from a CDN somewhere. But you've gone from being able to spec your own servers to just hoping that somebody's not... Um, you know, somebody's not got Netflix running on the same machine they're trying to view your website on. Yeah, uh, it's it's a, a really good point about um, the way that we design sites. And I think the the sort of traditional best practice has always been, you know, you should try and um, cater for all sorts of browsers, all sorts of uh, connection speeds, all sorts of screen sizes, um, because you don't know what the user is is going to be expecting. And as you said, you know, you have these scenarios where people say, oh, no, we know all our um, all our, our users are on, you know, their their work issued desktop machine. They've got, you know, they're running this browser. It's the latest version. They're hardwired into the LAN, and it's, you know, yep. But then things things happen. And one of the great benefits of having web apps is that we can do things like distribute our workforce suddenly back all to their homes, and they mm -hmm. can keep working. But that only holds true if the the quality of the engineering was such that then somebody who's spinning up their home machine that might have, you know, IE 11 on it <laughs> yeah, yeah. or whatever, um, it, whether the, the quality of the work is there, that actually means that, that the web fulfills its potential in being a, a truly accessible um, medium. I mean, it, it, as you say, there's, there's this trend to shift more and more stuff into the, into the browser. Um, and, of course, then if the, the browser is slow, uh, and that's where the the slowness happens. You sort of have to wonder is is this a is this a good trend? Should we be doing this? You know, I mean, I've 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 built sites that have. I mean, I could, I've got one site that I particularly think of uh, noticed um, that is almost a hundred percent server rendered. Um, there's very little JavaScript, and it's lightning fast. Uh, like every time I go to it, I think, oh, this is fast. Who wrote this? And I realize, oh, yeah, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> That's because you're on localhost. No wonder it feels fast. <laughs> but then <laughs> your also then, you know, my day job, we're, we're building out a, a, our single page application and shifting stuff away from the server because the server's the bottleneck uh, in mm -hmm. that case. Um, so, you know, is it, you know, can, is, can you just say that it's more performant to be in the browser or more performant to be on the server? Is it just a case of of measuring and, and taking it in a case-by-case -case basis? I think um, you need to be very, very, very aware of your context. And um, genuinely, I think uh, an error is narcissism, where people think, oh, my blog deserves to be rendered inside someone's browser, right? <laughs> you know, my, my, my blog with a bounce rate of 89% needs its own runtime in the browser, because I need subsequent navigations to be fast. I just want to fetch a basic a diff of the data. So, well, you know, no one's clicking onto your next article anyway, mate. Don't <laughs> don't push a runtime down the pipe. So you need to be very aware of your context. And I know that if Jeremy Keith's listening to this, he's going to probably put a hit out on me. But there is, I would say, a difference between a website and a web app. And the definition of that is very, very murky. But if you've got a heavily read and write application, so basically something where you're inputting data, manipulating data, etc. Basically, my site is not a web app. It's a website. It's read-only. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, that I would firmly put in a website camp. Something like my accountancy software that is a web app 
I would say, is a web app. And I am prepared to suffer a bit of boot time cost because I know I'll be in there for 20 minutes, an hour, whatever. So you need a bit of context. And again, maybe narcissism is a bit harsh, but you need to just have a real sort of, do we need to make this newspaper a client-side application? No, you don't. No, you don't. You know, people have got ad blocker on. People don't like coming to newspaper sites anyway. They're probably not even going to read the article and go rant about it on Facebook. Just don't don't build something like that as a client-rendered application. It's not suitable. So I do think there is definitely a point at which moving more into the client would help. And that's when you've got less sensitivity to churn. So an e-com site, for example, I've got, I'm doing an audit for a moment for a, uh, a site who, I mean, it's an e-com site that is 100% on the client. You disable JavaScript and you see nothing, just an empty div ID equals app. E-com is, you're very sensitive to any issues. Um, your checkout flow is even subtly wrong. I'm off somewhere else. It's too slow. I'm off somewhere else. Um, you don't have the context where someone's willing to bed into that app for a while. Photoshop, I pop open Photoshop and I'm quite happy to know that it's going to take 45 seconds of splash screen because I'm going to be in there for, basically that 45 seconds is worth the 45 minutes. Yeah. And it's so hard to define, which is why I really struggle to convince clients, please don't do this because I can't just say, how long do you think your user is going to be there for? And you can you can proxy it from like, well, if your bounce rate is 89%, don't optimize for a second page view. Like, get that bounce rate down first. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I do think there is definitely a split, but what I would say is this. Most people fall on the wrong side of that line. Most people put stuff in the client that shouldn't be there. Um, CNN, for example, you cannot read a single headline on the CNN website until it is fully booted a JavaScript application. The only thing server rendered is the header and footer, which is the only thing people don't care about. <laughs> and I feel like that is just, I don't know how we arrive at that point. It's never going to be the better option. You deliver a page that is effectively useless, which then has to say, cool, I'll go and fetch what would have been a web app, but we've got to run it in the browser. Then I'll go and ask for a headline. Then you can start to read, oh, you've gone. Okay. And I just, it really, really irks me. And it's no one's fault. I think it's the sort of infancy of, of this kind of JavaScript ecosystem, the, the hype around it. Um, and also, this is going to sound really harsh, but if you think about, it's basically a lot of it falls down to naive, implementa- naive implementation. Yeah, sure, Facebook have invented React and whatever, and it works for them. Um, nine times out of 10, you're not working at Facebook scale. And 95 times out of 100, you're probably not as smart as Facebook engineers. And that's really, really cruel, and it sounds horrible to say it, but you can only get... None of these things are fast by default, right? You need a very, very elegant implementation of these things to make them correct. I was having this discussion with my old... uh, He was like a lead engineer on the squad that I was on 10 years ago at Sky. Talking to him the other day about this, and he's he had to work very hard to make a client-rendered app fast. Whereas making a server-rendered app fast, you don't need to do anything. You just need to not make it slow again. <laughs> uh, and I feel like there's a lot of, I don't know, rose-tinted glasses, naivety, marketing. I don't know, I sound so bleak. We need to move on before I start really... <laughs> really losing people's uh 
losing people here. Do you, do you think we have a tendency uh, as an industry to focus more on developer experience than user experience sometimes? Not as a whole, but I think um, it crops up, that problem crops up in the places you'd expect. So um, if you look at the disparity, I don't know if you've seen this, and I'm going to presume you have. You seem to very much have your finger on the pulse. The disparity between HTTP archives data about what frameworks and JavaScript libraries are used in the wild versus the state of JavaScript survey. If you were to follow the state of JavaScript survey, it would say, oh, yes, 75% of developers are using React, whereas like fewer than 5% of sites are using React. So I feel like en masse, I don't think it's a problem, but I think in the areas you'd expect it, heavy loyalty to one framework, for example, developer experience is sort of evangelized probably ahead of the user. Uh, I don't think developer experience should be overlooked. I mean, everything has a maintenance cost, right? Mm. Um, your car, there was a decision when it was designed that, well, if we hide this key bit of functionality from a mechanic, it's going to take that mechanic a lot longer to fix it. Therefore, we don't do things like that. So there does need to be a balance of like ergonomics and usability. I think that is important. Uh, I think focusing on focusing primarily on developer experience is just baffling to me. I mean, don't optimize for you, optimize for your customer. You don't pay, your customer pays you. It's not the other way around. Yeah. So, so basically the, um, the sort of online echo chamber isn't necessarily representative of, of reality. When you see, no. <laughs> see everybody saying, oh, you should be using this, you should be doing that. Then, you know, that's actually only a, a very small percentage of, of people. Correct. And that's a good thing. That's, that's reassuring. Um, the echo chamber, it's not healthy to have like a, that kind of, monoculture perhaps if you want to call it that um but also i feel like uh, and i've seen it in a lot of my own work a lot of developers I, I, as a consultant i work with a lot of different companies a lot of people out there are doing amazing work in wordpress and wordpress still powers 24 percent of the web and i feel like it could be quite easy for a developer like that working in something like wordpress or you know php on the back end you know custom custom code whatever it is to feel a bit like, oh, well, yeah, I guess everyone's using React and we aren't. So actually, no, everyone's talking about React, but no, you know, you're still doing, you're still going with the flow, you're still with the majority here. I mean, it's quite reassuring to find that, you know, there's a silent majority. The um, the trend towards uh, static site generators and and then hosting things in, hosting sites entirely on a CDN, sort of Jamstack mm-hmm. approach. Um, I guess that when we're talking about those sorts of um, sites, you know, sort of publishing type sites rather than than software type sites, um, I guess that that's a, a sort of really healthy trend in terms of performance, would you think? I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure if I, <laughs> you'll remember when we used to call SSG flat file, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I built CS Wizardry on Jekyll back when Jekyll was called a flat file website. But yeah, now it'd be service I generated. Huge, huge fan of that. There's no there's no disadvantage to it, really. You'd pay maybe a slightly larger upfront compute cost of pre-compiling the site, but then you, you know, your compute cost is, well, Cloudflare fronts it, right? It's on a CDN. So your application servers are largely shielded from that. Um, anything interactive it does need doing can be done on the client or if you want to get fancy sort of what one really nice approach if you if you are feeling ambitious is like um, use edge side includes so you could keep your shopping cart server rendered but at the edge mm-hmm. um, you know you could do stuff like that um, tremendous performance benefits there um, not appropriate for a huge swathe of sites but like you say for anything publishing 
Yeah, an e-com site, it wouldn't work because you need real-time stock levels. You need, you know, search that doesn't just, you know, I don't know, you just need far more functionality. Um, but yeah, I think the Smashing site, great example. My site is an example from much smaller than Smashing. But yeah, SSG or flat file is, I'm, I'm really fond of it. I mean, could it could it work sort of going deeper into the, the Jamstack approach um, of... Uh, shifting everything into the client and, you know, building an e-commerce site. I think, you know, the smashing e-commerce site is essentially using JavaScript in the client and, and server APIs to do all that sort of, uh, to do the actual functionality as serverless functions or, or what have you. Yeah, that's, I've got to admit, I've not really done, well, I haven't done any stuff with serverless. But yeah, I mean, that hybrid approach absolutely works. Um yeah, perhaps my, my my e-commerce example was perhaps a bit clunky because yeah, you could you could get a hybrid between statically rendering a lot of the stuff. Because I mean, most things on an e-com site don't really change. It's only if you're, I mean, you filter when you can do on the client. You know, search a little more difficult. Stock levels does need to go back to an API somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, you could do a hybrid for definitely on an e-com site. I guess then it's just down to monitoring all those sorts of performance metrics again. You know, look. You, really caring about the network about latency about all these sorts of things as you're then leaning on the network a lot more um to to fetch all those individual bits of uh, of data it, it sort of just hosts a a new set of problems yeah i mean you, you kind of i wouldn't say robbing pieces to pay paul but you are going to have to <laughs> sort of keep on other things elsewhere i've not got fully to the bottom of it before anyone tweets in at us but um a client recently moved to um an e-commerce client i worked with them two years ago and their site was already pretty fast purely it was it was built on so i can't remember which like uh e-com platform it was but it was a dot net you know hosted on iis mm-hmm. server rendered obviously um and it was really fast because of that and you know it was great and we just wanted to maintain maybe add a couple of well sorry find a couple of hundred milliseconds here and there but really good halfway through last year they moved to client side react for key pages pdp the product details page product listing page and you know stuff just got markedly slower like much slower to the point they got back in touch needing basically help again and one of the interesting things i spotted when they were putting a case for like we need to actually revert this i was thinking about all the what's slower obviously it's slower how could doing more work ever be faster blah 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 one of their own bullet points in the audit was um, based on projections, their yearly hosting costs have gone up by a factor of 10 times. Because all of a sudden, they've gone from having one application server and a database to having loads of different gateways, loads of different APIs, loads of different microservices they're calling on. It just increased the surface area of their application massively. Um, um, the, The basic reason for this, I'll tell you exactly why this happened. The developer, it's a very small team, the developer who's decided I'm going to use React because it seems like fun, didn't do any business analysis, right? And it was never expected of them to actually put forward a case of, well, how much is it going to cost to do? How much is it going to co- like return? What's the maintenance cost of this? Uh, and that's the thing I come up against really frequently in my work, and it's never the developer's fault. It's usually because the business keeps financials away from the engineering team. If your engineers don't know the cost or value of their work, then they're not informed to make those decisions. So you know, this guy was never to know that, that was going to be the outcome. But yeah, interestingly, moving to a, a more microservice approach, and this is this is an outlier. I'm not going to say that that 10 times figure is typical. It definitely seems atypical. But it's true that there is at least one incident I'm aware of when moving to this approach, because they just had to use more providers. It 10x their 
there's your 10 times engineer uh, <laughs> increased increased hosting by 10 times i mean uh, it's an important point isn't it uh, before sort of starting out down any particular road with architectural changes or things about doing your doing your research and uh, and asking the right questions i mean if if you were going to embark on you know some big changes say you've got a, a really old website and you're going to structure it and you want it to be really fast and you're making it all your sort of technology choices i mean it, it pays doesn't it to talk to different people in the business to find out what they want to be doing i mean what sort of of questions should you be asking other people in the business as as a web developer or as a performance engineer what who who should you be talking to and what should you what should you be asking them i've got a really annoying answer to the who should you be talking to um and the answer is everyone should be available to you um and it, cause it will depend on the kind of business um you sh- but you should be able to speak to marketing hey look we're using this a b testing tool how much does that cost us a year and how much do you think it nets us a year uh and that developers should feel comfortable I'm not saying developers need to change their attitude. What I mean is the company should make the developers able to ask those kind of questions. Um, how much does optimizely cost us a year? Right, well, that seems like a lot. Does it make us that much in return? Okay, yeah, whatever. We can make a decision based on that. Um, so that's who you should be talking to. And then questions you should ask. It should be things of like um, the amount of companies I work with who they won't give their own developers access to Google Analytics. How are you meant to build a website if you don't know who you're building it for, right? You know, so questions should be, what is I work a lot with e-com clients, so it should be every developer should know things like what is our average order value, right? Uh, what is our conversion rate? What is our revenue? How much do we make? These things mean that you know you can at least understand that oh, like people spend a lot of money on this website, and I'm responsible for a big chunk of that, and I need to sort of take that responsibility. Um, Beyond that, other things are harder to put into context. So for me, one of the things I, as a consultant, so this is very different to an engineer in the business, but I need to know how sensitive you are to performance. So if a client gives me their average order value, their monthly traffic, and their conversion rate, I can work out how much 100 milliseconds, 500 a second will save them a year or or return them. Just based on those three numbers, I can work out roughly, well, a second's worth 1.8 mil. It's a lot harder for someone in the business to get all of that kind of information because, well, as a performance engineer, it's second nature to me. But if you can work that kind of stuff out, and you, you unlocks a load of doors, you know, okay, well, if a second's worth this much to us, I need to make sure that I never lose a second, and if I can, gain a second back. Uh, and that, that will inform a lot of things going forward. But um, a lot of it's because developers are kept quite siloed. Um, you know, oh, well, you don't need to know about business stuff. Just shut up and type. We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to tell you about some upcoming online workshops from Smashing. While the current global situation has many of us tied to our homes and unable to attend in-person events, that doesn't mean the learning has to stop. Smashing workshops are conducted all live and online, and broken up into manageable short chunks across different days that are easier to fit around your existing commitments. February sees workshops on building modern HTML emails with Remy Parmentier, the SVG Animation Masterclass with Cassie Evans, the CSS Layout Masterclass with Rachel Andrew, and Successful Design Systems with Brad Frost. March brings us Psychology for UX and Product Design with Joe Leach, Finding Clients Masterclass with Paul Boag, the Behavioral Design Workshop 
with Susan Guthrie Weinstein and designing the perfect navigation with our own Vitaly Friedman. In some cases, early bird pricing is still available, but places are selling fast. To find out more about these upcoming smashing workshops, visit smashingconf.com. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. I mean, I've I've um, heard you say uh, it's it's quite a nice soundbite that nobody wants a faster website. Um, yeah. What What do you mean by that? Um. Well, it kind of comes back to a thing I mentioned already in the podcast. That if, if my clients truly wanted the world's fastest website, they would allow me to go in and delete all their JavaScript, all their CSS, all their all their images, give their customers a Times New Roman special, and you know. But fast for fast sake is is. Uh, I don't know, not kind of chasing the wrong thing, but you need to know what fast means to you. Because um, I see it all the time with clients, there's a point at which you can stop. You might find that your customer is only so sensitive to WebPerf, and it might mean that getting a first contentful paint from four seconds to two seconds might give you a 10% increase in revenue, but getting from that two down to, say, one might only give you an additional 1% increase. And it's still twice as fast but you know you get minimal minimal gains right um so what i need to do with my clients is work out how sensitive are you when can we take our foot off the gas um and also like i said towards the top of the show like uh you you need to have a product that people want to buy you know if people don't want to buy your product doesn't matter how quickly you show them it it'll just disgust (laughs) them faster i guess um is your checkout flow really 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 seamless on mobile for example um so there's a number of factors. So for me and my clients, it'll be kind of working out that sweet spot and also working out, right, well, if getting from here to here is going to make you 1.8 mil a year, I can find you that second for a fraction of that cost. But if you want me to get you an additional second on top of that, it's going to get a lot harder. So my cost to you will probably go up. And that won't be an extra 1.8, because it's not lineal. You don't get 1.8 mil for every one second, right? So it will sort of tail off at some point. And clients will get to a point where they'll still be making gains, but you know it might be a case of your engineering effort doubles and your returns halve. You'll still be in the green, hopefully. Hopefully, you know, it doesn't get more expensive and you're losing money on performance, but there is a point where you need to sort of slow down. And that's usually things that I help clients find out because otherwise they will just keep chasing speed 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 and get a bit blinkered yeah it's, it's sort of diminishing returns isn't it like, like that's many what things. i was looking for yeah diminishing returns that's exactly it yeah exactly and in in terms of um sort of knowing where to focus your effort i mean say you've got you know the maybe the bulk of your users you know 80 percent of your users are, are getting a response within two three seconds and then you've got 20 percent who maybe you know in the sort of long tail that you know, might end up with responses five ten seconds mm-hmm. is it better to focus on that 80 percent where where the work's really hard or is it better to focus on the 20 percent that's super slow where the work might be easier but it's only 20 percent oh. how do you how do you balance those sorts of things drew can you can you write all podcast questions for everyone else <laughs> this is so good well a bit of like a a shout out to uh, Tim Cadleck. He's done great talks on this very topic and he calls it the long tail of web performance. Um, so anyone listening who wants to look at that, Tim's done a lot of good firsthand work there. Um, now, the 80-20, let's just take those as good example figures. Um, 
by the time you're dealing with the 80th percentile, you are already, like, you're definitely in the edge cases. All your crooks and web vitals data is based around 75th percentile. Um, I think there's a lot of value investing in that top 20th percentile, the worst 20%. Several reasons for this. First thing I'm going to start with is one of the most beautiful, succinct sound bites I've ever heard. And the guy who told me it, I can guarantee, did not mean it to be this impactful. I was 15 years old when I was studying product design at GCSE. Uh, finally, a project was a bar stool, so it was a good sort of uh, <laughs> sign of things to come. And um, we were talking about how you design furniture, right? And my teacher basically said, Oh, my teacher, I don't know if I should say his name. I'm going to say his name, Mr. Brocklesby. Um, he was like, he commanded respect, but he was still one of the lads. We all really liked him. But he was massive in every dimension. Well over six foot tall, but just just a really, just a big lad. Big, 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 big man. Um, and he basically said to us, if you were to design a doorway, would you design it for the average person? And 15-year-old brains are going, oh, well, yeah, yeah, like if everyone's roughly... Five nine, then yeah. He was like, well, immediately, Harry can't use that door. You don't design for the average person. You design for the extremities because you want it to be useful to the most people. If you designed a chair for the average person, Mr. Brocklesby wasn't going to fit in it, right? So he taught me from a really, really early age, design to your extremities. Now, where that becomes really interesting in WebPerf is if you imagine web, if you imagine like a ladder, and you pick up the ladder by the bottom. Actually, no, this works for. Okay, I've just raised my metaphor. I'll stick with it, and then you okay. can laugh at me afterwards. <laughs> Imagine a ladder, and you lift the ladder up by the bottom rungs, and that's your, that's your worst experiences. You pick the bottom rung of the ladder, lift it up. The whole ladder comes up with it, right? Like a rising tide floats all boats. The reason that metaphor doesn't work, if you pick a ladder up by the top rung, it all lifts as well. It's a ladder. <laughs> so. And the metaphor doesn't even work if I turn it to a rope ladder, because a rope ladder, then you lift the bottom rung and nothing happens. But <laughs> my point is, if you can make... If you can improve experience for your 90th percentile, it's it's got to get better for your 10th percentile, right? Um, and this is why I tell clients, they will say to me things like, oh, most of our users are on 4G on iPhones. It's like, right, okay. And we start testing 3G on Android. They're like, no, no, most of our users are iPhones. It's like, okay, that means your average user is going to have a better experience. But anyone who isn't already in the 50th percentile just gets further left further behind. So set the bar pretty high for yourself by setting expectations pretty low. Um, sorry, I've got a really bad habit of giving really long answers to short questions. Uh, but it was a fantastic question. And I, to basically try and wrap up 100%, definitely I agree with you that you want to look at that long tail. You want to look at that your 80th percentile upwards. Um, because if you take all the experiences on the site and look at the median and you improve the median, that means you've made it even better for people who are already quite satisfied, 50% of people being effectively ignored is not not the right approach. Um, and yeah, it always comes back to Mr. Brocklesby telling me, um, don't design for the average person because then Harry can't use the door. Oh, for anyone listening, I'm, I'm 193 centimetres, so I'm, I'm quite lanky. Uh, that's what that is. And all, all those arms and legs. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another good one as well. My girlfriend recently discovered the accessibility settings in iOS. So um, everyone has their phone on silent, right? Nobody actually has a phone that actually rings. Everyone's got it on silent. But she found that, oh, do you know what? You can, you can set it so that when you get a message, it, the, the flash flashes. And if you tap the back of the phone twice, it'll do a screenshot. And these are accessibility settings. These are designed for that 95th percentile. 
yet she's like, oh, this is really useful. Same with OXO Good Grips. OXO Good Grips, the um, kitchen utensils, I got a load of them in the kitchen. They're designed, of course, the founder's wife had arthritis and he wanted to make more comfortable utensils. He designed for the 99th, 99th percentile, right? Most people don't have arthritis. But by designing for the 99th percentile, inadvertently, everyone else is like, oh my God, why can't all potato peelers be this comfortable? And I feel like it's really, really, I kind of like a feel-good little anecdote that I like to kind of wheel out in these sort of scenarios. Yeah, if you, if you optimize for then, well, a rising tide floats all boats and that therefore optimize to the tail end of people and you're going to capture some, a lot of even happier customers above that. Do you have the um, uh, OXO Good Grips uh, manual uh, hand whisk? Uh, I don't. I don't, is it? Look at it. It's so, so good. I'll tell you what I, do have. <laughs> I do have the OXO Good Grips mandolin slicer, which took the end of my finger off last week. Yeah, I won't go near one of those. Yeah, that's my own stupid fault. <laughs> Another um, uh, sort of example from my own experience with catering for that long tail is that um, in the, the project I'm working on at the moment, the, that long tail is having the, you know, right at the end, you've got people with the slowest performance. But it turns out if you look at who those customers are, they're the most valuable customers to the business okay. because they are the biggest organizations with the most amount of data. Right. And so it's, it, they're, they're hitting bottlenecks because they have so much data to display on, on a page and those pages need to, you know, be refactored a little bit to, to help that use case. So they're having the slowest experience and they're, you know, when it comes down to it, paying the most money yeah. and, and making so much more of a difference than, all the people are having a really fast experience because they're free users with you know a tiny amount of data and it all works nice and it's, it's quick. That's a fa- that's a fascinating dimension, isn't it? Um, in fact, I had a similar not not it had no any with the no any other business impact as what you've just described. But um, I worked with a client a couple of years ago and uh, their CEO got in touch because their site was slow, like slow, slow, slow. And this guy's a multi, really nice guy as well. Like he's not one of those, he's just a really nice down to earth guy, but he's minted like proper rich. And um, he's got the latest iPhone. He's key can afford that. He's, you know, multi-millionaire. Um, he spends a lot of his time flying between Australia where he is from and Estonia where he's now based. He's flying first class, of course he is. Um, but it means most of his time on his nice, shiny iPhone 12 Pro Max, whatever, whatever, is over airplane Wi-Fi, right? And this is terrible. And it was this really amazing juxtaposition where, yeah, this, this is the, he owns the site and he uses it a lot. It's a site that he uses. And he was pushing it. I mean, you got like, easily their richest customer was their CEO, and he's in this weirdly privileged position where he's on a worse connection than Joe Public because he's you know somewhere above Singapore on a Qantas flight, you know, getting champagne poured down his neck, and he's struggling, right? And I thought it was, that was a really fascinating insight that, oh yeah, because you've got like your 95th percentile can basically go in either direction. Yeah, it's when you start optimizing for using a, a site with a glass of champagne in one hand. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You think maybe maybe you're starting to lose away a bit. Um, yeah, exactly. We we talked a little bit about measurement of performance, um, and like in my own experience with performance work, it's really essential to to measure everything. Um, a so that you can identify where problems are, 
but B, so that um, when you actually start tackling something, you can tell if you're making a, a difference and, mm-hmm. and how much of a difference um, you're making. How should we be going about measuring the performance of our sites? What what tools can we use and where should we start? Oh, man, another, another great question. So there's, there's a range of answers depending on how much uh, time, resources, inclination there is towards fixing site speed. So what I will try and do with clients is... Certain off-the-shelf metrics are really good. Load time, do not care about that anymore. It's very, very, very kind of load time. I mean, it's a good proxy. If your load time is 120 seconds, I'm going to guess you don't have a very fast website. But it's too obscure and it's not very customer-facing. I actually think vitals are a really good step in the right direction because they do measure the user experience, but they're based on technical sort of input, I guess. Largest content for paint is a really nice thing to visualize but the technical stuff there is unblock your critical path make sure hero images arrive quickly and make sure your web font strategy is decent right there's a technical undercurrent to these metrics those are really good off the shelf um however if clients have got the time it's usually time because as you say you want to capture the data but you need time to actually capture the data so what i can what i try and do with clients is i'll say look we can't really work together for the next three months because I'm fully booked. So what we can do is really quickly set you up with a free trial of speed curve, set up some custom metrics. So that means that for a publisher client, a newspaper, I'd be measuring um, how quickly was the headline of the article rendered? Uh, how quickly was the lead image for the article rendered? For an e-commerce client, I want to measure... Because um, obviously you're measuring things like start render passively. As soon as you start using any performance monitoring software, you're capturing your actual performance metrics free. So your first contentful paint, largest contentful, etc. What I really want to capture is things that matter to them as a business. So working with an e-com client at the moment, where we are able to correlate, if you're start basically the faster your start render, what is the probability of someone adding to cart? And basically, we can see that if you can show them a product sooner, they are more likely to buy it. Um, this is a lot of effort to set up. So this is kind of the stretch goal for clients who are really ambitious. But anything that you actually really want to measure, because like I say, you don't really want to measure what your largest contentful paint is. You want to measure your revenue. And was that influenced by large contentful paint? So the stretch goal Ultimate thing would be, yeah, anything you would see as a KPI for that business. So it could be on a newspaper site, how far down the article did someone scroll? And is that correlated in any way to first input delay? Did people read more articles if CLS was lower? Um, But then um, before that, you know, before we can start doing custom, custom metrics, I honestly think Web Vitals is a really good place to start. And it's also been quite well normalized. Um, So it becomes like a... I don't know what the word is. It's the lowest common denominator, I guess, where everyone in the industry now can discuss performance on this this sort of level playing field. Now, one problem I've got, and I actually need to set up a meeting with the Vitals team, is I also really think Lighthouse is great, but um, CLS is 33% of web vitals. You get LTP, FID, CLS. CLS is 33% of your vitals. Vitals is what normally goes in front of your marketing team, your analytics department, because it goes, it pops in Search Console, it's mentioned in context of search results pages. So whereas Vitals is concerned, you've got heavy weighting, 33%, a third of Vitals is CLS. It's only 5% of a Lighthouse score. 
So what you're going to get is developers who build around Lighthouse, because it can be you know, integrated into tooling. It's a, it's a lab metric. Vitals is field data. It's run. So you've got this massive disconnect where you've got your marketing team saying, CLS is really bad. And developers are thinking, well, it's 5% of the Lighthouse score that DevTools is giving me. It's 5% of the score that Lighthouse CLI gives us you know, on Circle CI or whatever you're using. Yet for the marketing team, it's 33% of what they care about. So the problem there is a bit of a disconnect because I do think Lighthouse is very valuable. But I don't know how they reconcile that fairly massive difference where in Vital, CLS is 33% of your score. Well, not score, you don't really have one. And, you know, Lighthouse is only 5%. And it's things like that that still need ironing out before we can make this kind of discussion seamless. But again, long answer to a short question. Um, Vitals is really good. LCP is a good user experience metric, which can be boiled down to technical solutions. Same with FID, same with CLS. So uh, I think that's a really good jump off point. Um, and then, yeah, beyond that, it's custom metrics. Because what I try and get my clients to is a point where they don't really care how fast their site is. They just care that it make more money than yesterday. And if it did, is that because it was running faster? If it made less, was that because it was running slower? I don't want them to chase a mystical two-second LCP. I want them to chase the optimum LCP. And if that actually turns out to be slower than what you think, then whatever, that's fine. So, I mean, for the for the sort of uh, web developer who's just interested in, you know, they've, they've not got budget to spend on tools like maybe Speed Curve uh, and things, um, they can obviously run tools like Lighthouse, just mm-hmm. from within their browser to to get some good um, to some good measurement. Um, are things like Google Analytics useful for at that sort of level? Yeah, they are, and they can be made more useful. So, um, Analytics for many years now has captured rudimentary performance information, and that is going to be basically DNS time, TCP time, or well, TCP and TLS time to first byte, page download time, which is. A proxy, for, well, you know, whatever. It's just page download time and load time. So fairly clunky metrics, but it's a good jump-off point. And normally every project I start with a client, if they don't have a new relic or speed curve or whatever, I'll just say, well, let me have a look at your analytics because I can at least proxy the situation from there. But and it's never going to be anywhere near as good as something like speed curve or, or new relic or Dynatrace or whatever. You can send custom metrics really, really, really easily off to uh, analytics. If anyone listening wants to be able to send, for my site, for example, I've got metrics like how quickly can you read the heading of one of my articles? At what point was the about page image rendered? At what point was the call to action that implores you to hire me? How soon was that rendered to screen? Really trivial to capture this data and even almost as trivial again to send it to analytics. So if anyone wants to just view source on my site, scroll down to the closing body tag and find the analytics snippet, you will see just how easy it is for me to capture custom data and send that off to analytics. And in the analytics UI, you don't need to do anything. So normally you'd have to set up custom reports and mine the data and make it presentable. These are a first-class citizen in Google Analytics. So the moment you start capturing custom metrics, there's a whole section of the dashboard dedicated to it. So there's no setup, no heavy lifting in GA itself. So it's really trivial, and if clients want a real budget or maybe I still want to show them the the power of custom monitoring, I don't want to say to them, oh, yeah, I, prom- I promise it'll be really good. Can I just have 24 grand for speed curve? Um, I can start by saying, look, this is rudimentary, but see the possibilities here. 
now we can maybe convince you to upgrade to something like speed curve i i've often found that my gut instinct about how far something should be um or, or what sort of impact a change uh, should have can be wrong um I'll, th- I'll make a change and think i'm making things faster and then i measure it and i'm actually i've made things slower um is that just me being rubbish at WebPerf? No, not you at all. Uh, I've got a really pertinent example of this. Um, preload. Um, a quick, a quick, real quick intro for anyone who's not heard of preload. Loading certain assets on the web is inherently very slow, and the two primary candidates here are background images in CSS and web fonts. Because before you can download a background image, you have to download the HTML, which then downloads the CSS, and then the CSS says, oh, this div on the homepage needs this background image. So it's inherently very slow because you've got that entire chunk of CSS time in between. With preload, you can put a little one line of HTML in the head tag that says, hey, you don't know it yet, but trust me, you'll need this image really, really, really soon. So you can put a preload in the HTML, which preemptively fires off this download. By the time the CSS needs the background image, it's like, oh, cool, we've already got it. That's fast. Problem is, and this is touted as like this web perf messiah that's just it's and here's the thing, and I promise you, I tweeted this last week, and I've been proved right twice since. People hear about preload and the, the promise it gives, and also it's very heavily pushed by Lighthouse. In theory, it makes your site faster. People get so married to the idea of preload that even when I can prove it isn't working, they will not remove it again. Because I like, know but Lighthouse said. Now, this is one of those things where the theory is sound. If you have to wait for your web font versus downloading it earlier, you're going to see stuff faster, right? The problem is, when you think about how the web actually works, any page you first hit, any brand new domain you hit, you've got a finite amount of bandwidth. And the browser is very smart at spending that bandwidth correctly. It will look through your HTML really quickly and make a shopping list. Most important thing is CSS, then it's this jQuery, then it's this... And then next few things are these, these, and these, less priority. As soon as you start loading your HMO with preloads, you're telling the browser, no, 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 this isn't your shopping list anymore, buddy. This is mine. You need to go and get these. That finite amount of bandwidth is still finite, but it's now spent across more assets. So everything gets marginally slower. And I've had to do this twice in the last week. And... Still, people are like, yeah, but no, it's like because it's downloading sooner. It's like, no, it's being requested sooner, but it's stealing bandwidth from your CSS. Like, you can literally see your web fonts are stealing bandwidth from your CSS. So, it's one of those things where you have to, have to, have to follow the numbers. Um, I've done it before on a large scale client. Like, if you're listening to this, you've heard of this client. And I was quite insistent that, no, no, your head tags are in the wrong order because this is how it should be. And you need to add in this order because it's theoretically, theoretically, it's my clues in the even in what i was saying to the client i knew i was setting myself up for a fall but i was like because of browser how browsers work this has to be faster so i made them deploy this change uh to many millions of people and it got slower <laughs> it got slower <laughs> and me sitting there indignantly sort of insisting no but browsers work <laughs> like this it's useless because it's not working and we, we reverted it and i was like sorry I'm still gonna invoice you for that um so yeah it's not you at all (laughs) follow these numbers (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly um yeah i actually have to charge you more because i spent time reverting it and it took me longer 
But yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it's not you. It's one of those things where, I mean, I've done it a bunch of times on a much smaller scale where I'll be like, well, this theoretically must work. And it doesn't. And you just got to follow what happens in the real world, which is why that monitoring is, is really important. Um, as, as the sort of uh, landscape changes and, um, you know, technology develops, Google rolls out new, new technologies that help us make things faster. Is there a, a good way that we can keep up with, the changes is there are there any sort of resources that we should be looking at to keep our skills up to date when it comes to webperf um yeah so to quickly address the whole google making yeah i know it's like slightly tongue-in-cheek but i do think it's i'm i'm gonna focus on this like i said right towards the beginning bet on the browser um things like amp for example they're they're at best a afterthought patch of a solution there's no replacement for building a fast site. And the moment you start using things like AMP, uh, you're beholden to those non-standard standards. You know, you're at the mercy of you know the AMP team changing their mind. I had a client spend a fortune licensing a font from an AMP um, allow-listed font provider. Then at some point, AMP decided, oh, actually, no, that font provider, we're going we're gonna to block list them now. So I had a client who was invested heavily in AMP and this font provider and had to choose well, do we undo all the AMP work or do we just waste this very big number a year on the web font, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'd be very wary of any one component. You know, I'm a Google developer expert, but I don't have like any gagging order. I can be sort of critical. And I, I would say, um, yeah, avoid things that are hailed as like a, a one-size-fits-all solution, things like AMP. I mean, you know, and to, to dump on someone else for a second uh, cloudflare has a thing called rocket loader which is amp-esque in its um endeavor i guess it, it's designed like, oh just turn this thing on on your cd and it'll make your site faster and actually do you know what it's just a replacement for building the site properly in the first place so yeah um to kind of address that aspect of it try and remain as independent as possible know how browsers work which immediately means that yeah chrome monoculture you're back in google's lap um, but know how browsers work. Um, stick to certain fundamental ideologies. When you're building a site, look at the page, whether that's in Figma or Sketch or wherever it is. Look at the design and just say, well, that is what a user wants to see first. So I'll put nothing in the way of that. I won't lazy load this main image because that's daft. Why would I do that? So just think about what would you want a user to see first? On an e-com site, it's going to be that product image, probably nav at the same time. Reviews of the product, Q&A of the product, yeah, lazy load that. Took that behind JavaScript. So certain fundamental ways of working that will serve you right no matter what technology you're reading up on, which is a prioritize what your customer prioritizes. Doing more work will never be faster, so don't put things in the way of that. But then more tactical things for people to be aware of, keep abreast of. Um, I think, and again, going straight back, to, straight back to Google, but web.dev is proving to be a phenomenal resource for um, framework agnostic, stack agnostic insights. So if you want to learn about vitals, you want to learn about PWAs. So web.dev is really great. Um, there's actually very few performance-centric publications. Um, Calibre's email is like, I think it's fortnightly perf email is just phenomenal. It's a really good digest. Um, 
keep an eye on the web platform in general. So there's the performance working group. They've got a load of stuff like on GitHub proposals. Again, back to Google, but um, no one knows about this website and it's phenomenal. ChromeStatus.com basically tells you exactly what Chrome's working on, what the signals are from other browsers. So if you wanna see what the work is on priority hints, you can go and get links to all the relevant bug trackers. Uh, Chrome Status shows you milestones for each sort of like, this is coming out in M88, this was released in 67 or whatever. That's a really good thing for quite a technical insights. Um, but I keep coming back to this thing and, and I know I probably sound like you know, old man shouts at cloud, but stick to the basics. Nearly every single pound or dollar, euro I've ever earned has been teaching clients that, you know the browser does this already, right? <laughs> or you know that this couldn't possibly be faster. And that sounds really like righteous on me. I've never made a cent off of selling extra technology. Every bit of money I make is about removing, subtracting. If you find yourself adding things to make your site faster, you're in the wrong direction. Case in point, I'm not going to name the big advertising slash search engine slash browser company at all. I'm not going to name them. <laughs> and I'm not going to name the JavaScript framework. But I'm currently in discussions with a very, very big, very popular JavaScript framework about removing something that's actively harming or optionally removing something that would harm the performance of a many, many, like a massive number of websites. And they're like, oh, well, we're going to loop in someone from this big company because they did some research. And it's like, we need to remove this thing because, or we need an option to remove this thing because you can see here, here, and here, it's making this site slower. And their solution was to add more. Like, oh, no, no, but if you do this as well, then you can sidestep that. And it's like, no, no, adding more to make a site faster must be the wrong solution. You, you Surely you can see that you're heading in the wrong direction if it takes more code to end up with a faster site because it was fast to start with and everything you add is what makes it slower and the idea of adding more to make it faster although might it might manifest itself in a faster website it's the wrong way about it because you're just cropping it's a race to the bottom sorry i'm getting really getting really het up you can tell i've not ranted for a while <laughs> so yeah so that's the other thing if you find yourself adding features to make a site faster you're probably heading in the wrong direction it's far more effective to make a site faster by removing things than it is to add them. Um, you've put together a, uh, a video course uh, called Everything I've Done to Make CSS Wizardry Fast. Yeah. It's a bit different from sort of traditional online video courses, isn't it? Um, it is. It is. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest. It's, it's partly, I don't, don't, don't want to say laziness on my part, but um, I didn't want to design a curriculum which had to be very rigid and sort of take you from zero to hero because... The, the time involved in doing that is enormous and time I didn't know if I would have. Um, so what I wanted to do is have ready-to-go material. I could just screencast myself talking through it. So it doesn't sort of start off with, here is a browser and here's how it works. So you do need to be at least aware of WebPerf fundamentals, but it's like hacks and pro tips and sort of real-life examples. And, and because I didn't need to do a full curriculum, I was able to like slam the price way down. So it's like not it's not like a big 10-hour course that will take you from zero to hero. It's dipping in and out as you see fit. Um, and yeah, it's just basically looking at my site, which is an excellent playground for things that are unstable perhaps, or it's very low risk for me to just experiment there. Uh, so I've just done yeah, a, a video series. It was a ton of, a ton of fun to record. Um, 
yeah, yeah. Uh, just just tearing down my own site and talking about well, this is how this works, and here's how you could use it, and yeah. I think it's really great how it's it's split up into um, solving different problems. So if I want to find out more about, you know, optimizing images or whatever, I can think, right, what does my mate Harry have to say about this? Dip into the um, the video about images and, and off a go. Um, it's really accessible in, in that way. You don't have to sit through hours and hours of stuff. You can just go, go to the bit you want and learn what you need to learn and then get out. Yeah, I think I try to keep it more. I mean, well, I guess the benefit of not doing a rigid curriculum is you don't need to watch a certain video first. There's no intro, right? It's just like, go and go and look around and see what you find interesting. Um, which meant that, yeah, if someone's suffering with LCP issues, they're like, oh, well, I'll go and dive into this folder here. Or if they know they're suffering with CSS problems, they can go and dive into that folder. Which means that um, I, I, I obviously I have no stats, but I imagine there's a high abandonment rate on courses purely because you might have to trudge through three hours of intro and you don't skip in case you do miss something. And it's like, oh, I, do you know what? I can't keep doing this every day. I need to start. And the people might just abandon a lot of courses. So my, my thinking was maybe just dive in. You don't need to have seen the preceding three hours. You can just go and find whatever you want. Uh, feedback's been really, really... In fact, what I'll do is, um, it doesn't exist yet, but by the time I'll do it straight after the call, if anybody uses the discount code SMASHING15, they'll get 15% off of it. So it, it's almost like you've uh, performance optimized the... Uh, the course itself because you can just go straight to the bit you want and you don't have to do all the negotiation yeah unintentional but i'll take credit for that (laughs) um so i've been learning all about web performance Uh, what what have you been learning about lately harry um oh actually do you know what i mean technical stuff uh not really i've got a lot on my to learn list so like i said quick h3 sort of stuff i would like to get a bit more a bit more working knowledge of that um but um, I wrote an ebook during first lockdown in the UK, so I learned about how to make ebooks, which was a ton of fun because they're just HTML and CSS, and I know my way around that. So that was a ton of fun. Um, I learned very rudimentary video editing um, for the course, um, and I feel like what I liked about those is they weren't none of that's conceptual work. Obviously, learning a programming language, you got to wrestle concepts, whereas learning an ebook was like just workflows and intro, just stuff I'd never tinkered with before. So it meant. It was interesting to learn, but not much of a... It didn't require a change of career, right? So that was quite nice. And then um, non-technical stuff, I've been doing a lot of research into... I mean, I ride a lot of bikes, fall off a lot of bikes. Um, <laughs> and because I'm, I've, I've not travelled at all since last March, nearly a year now, I've been doing a lot more cycling and then focusing a lot more on sort of, I don't know, improving that so i've been doing a load of research around like power outputs and functional threshold powers i'm doing a training program at the moment so constantly constantly exhausted legs but i'm learning a lot about um sort of physiology around cycling i uh, don't know why because i've got no plans to actually do anything with it other than just keep keep riding that's been really fascinating um it's i feel like i've been very fortunate during lockdowns plural that um managed to stay active um a lot of people will miss out on just simple things like a daily commute to the office is a good chance to stretch legs. In the UK, as you'll know, cycling has been very much uh, championed. So it's been really good for that. So I've been yeah, tinkering a lot more with just learning more about riding bikes from a more physiological aspect, uh, which means, I don't know, just, just being a nerd about something else for a change. There's uh, perhaps not all that much uh, difference between um, 
performance optimization on the web and performance optimization in in cycling it's all marginal gains right yeah exactly and the amount of graphs i've been looking at on the bike i've got um got power data from the bike and i'll go out on a ride and i'll come back and like oh if i had five more watts here but then just say 10 watts there i could do this this and this the fastest ever and being a massive anorak about it but yeah you're right it's it's kind of <laughs> Do you know what? I think you've hit upon something really interesting there. I think that kind of thing is its a good sport slash pastime for someone who is a bit obsessive, or who does like chasing numbers. Um, there are things on, I mean, you'll know this, uh, but, you know, on Strava, you've got your KOMs. And I bagged 19 of them last year, which is, for me, like a phenomenal amount. And it was nearly all from just obsessing over available data and looking at, oh, well, this guy that I'm trying to beat, he was doing... 700 watts at this point i could get up to a thousand and then tail off and blah 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 and it's been <laughs> obsessive <laughs> nerdy yeah uh, but yeah you're right it's, i guess it's a similar kind of thing isn't it if you could just learn where you could afford to tweak things from or squeeze last little drops out um and you've you've still got uh, limited bandwidth in both cases you know you've got limited en- energy and you've got li- <laughs> limited network connection exactly you can't just magic some more uh, some more bandwidth yeah. there if you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Harry, you can find him on Twitter, where he's at CSS Wizardry, or go to his website at cssWizardry.com, where you'll find some fascinating case studies of his work and find out how to hire him to help solve your performance problems. Um, Harry's ebook that he mentioned and a video course will link up from the show notes. Thanks for joining us today, Harry. Do you have any parting words? I'm not one for sound bites and motivational quotes, but I heard something really, really, really insightful recently. Everyone keeps saying, oh, well, we're all in the same boat. And we're not, right? We're all in the same storm. And some people have got better boats than others. Some people are in little dinghies. Some people have got mega yachts. So I guess, God, is that, is that a bit dreary to end on? Yeah, don't worry about Corona. You'll be dead, you'll be dead soon anyway. Um, Keep hold of your oars and you'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. But no, um, I don't know. I just think... Um, I was on a call last night with some some web colleagues and we were talking about this and missing each other a lot. You know, the web is by default remote, right? It's all point over the web. But I think missing a lot of human connection. So, you know, chatting to you for this hour and a bit now has been wonderful. It's been really nice. So I just, I just hope, I don't know, don't know what my parting words really are meant to be. I should have prepared something. But uh, I just hope everyone's well. I hope everyone's making what they can out of lockdown and people are keeping busy. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at smashingmag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. <laughs>